The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. This is The Exchange, and here's what's ahead today. The child tax credit payments are going out to families of 60 million children, getting more than 400 bucks a month on average. Is this a major step towards a universal basic income? And controversy is growing around Biogen's Alzheimer's drug. Just days after the Center for Medicare and Medicaid began its review of Adjuhelm, two major hospital systems are saying they won't use it. Does it have a future? Plus, quitting crypto, souring on oat milk, and don't charge in your garage. Those stories are all coming up in rapid fire, but we do start with today's market action. Dom Chu is here with those numbers. All right, so Kelly, what we've got here is a market that has turned around a little bit. We were in the red in negative territory early on, and it looked like we were going to see modest losses at the midday trade. But here we are seeing the Dow Industrials get back to just about flat. We were down earlier in the session. The S&P 500 has held pretty steady, down about one quarter to one half of one percent. But the Nasdaq has now turned around to be the big laggard of the day, down by three quarters of one percent, 14,536, the last trade there. So an interesting dynamic. The Dow had been underperforming. The Nasdaq had been out. And now we're kind of flipped for this day. So at this hour, the Nasdaq is certainly that index to watch. One place where we are seeing some positivity that has been a turnaround as well, is in the banks, specifically in Morgan Stanley. Okay, I spoke too soon. It's now flat on the day. U.S. Bank Corp, though, solid gains 3.5% there. Truist Financial up 2%. These two regional banks both posted better-than-expected profits and revenues for their most recent quarter. Morgan Stanley did as well. The difference, Kelly, though, the setup, U.S. Bank Corp and Truist were weaker going into earnings, and then Morgan Stanley was a little bit stronger, so perhaps I'll get a reversal there. And then GameStop. It is now back to being one of the most popular ticker searches on CNBC.com. And by the way, the rollover that you're seeing on this right-hand side of the screen here is the result, at least most recently, of a five-day losing streak. The Netflix news from yesterday did have reverberations, and GameStop was one of them. If Netflix does have, Kelly, broader aspirations for a future in video gaming, what does that mean for a company like Netflix? Well, the shares are down about four and a quarter percent today. Again, five-day losing streak. Kel, I'll send things back over. Still hanging on to 160. It's been an impressive run. Dom, thanks. Let's begin with a look at the flood of ETF inflows since January. This year is on track to outpace last year's record, and the management style of these funds is also starting to evolve. Bob Bassani is down at the NYSE with more today. Bob? Hello, Kelly. Good to see you. The ETF tidal wave continues and it's accelerating. Now, year to date, U.S. ETFs have taken in $488 billion, and that's going to easily outpace the roughly $500 billion inflows in 2020. That was a record year. So you see this is going to be huge this year. Why are ETFs so popular in general? What's causing the record inflows? Well, they have many advantages over mutual funds. They can trade intraday, intraday, number one. Number two, they have lower fees, much lower fees. And number three, they're more tax efficient. 
but several trends are accelerating that are benefiting ETFs. First, inflows into passive or index funds continue as passive investing continues to win out over active investing. Second, even those active managers are starting to adopt the ETF wrapper to trade. And finally, many mutual funds are now starting to convert itself to an ETF structure. Finally, while there are 200 ETF providers, there's really only a very small group of winners, and I can count them on one hand. The top five ETF providers, they're 81% of all the assets under management for ETFs. Look at the numbers here. BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Charles Schwab. This has led Kelly to concerns about too much concentration. The journal noted that the big three, BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, collectively own 22% of the typical S&P 500 company. I'm not sure if I think that's a bad thing necessarily. Vanguard's been phenomenally successful because they provide great service and extremely low fees to get into their funds. People have flocked to those low fees. The companies have been successful. Very interesting debate about that concentration. Kelly? Yeah, but the active management style noted by BlackRock as well uh, for some of their growth. Bob, thank you very yeah. much, Bob Bassani. Okay. Speaking of which, Goldman Sachs is launching its first actively managed equity fund today with a focus on sustainability. The Future Planet Equity ETF ticker GSFP just began trading on the NICE and investment companies providing solutions in clean energy, water, and more. We're all kind of dressed up for the Earth Day theme here. My next guest helped launch the fund and says ESG could be a major wealth generator over the next decade. Let's welcome in Katie Koch. She's co-head of fundamental equity for Goldman Sachs Asset Management. Katie, welcome. What differentiates this product from all the other ESG offerings out there? One of the major differences of this ETF, first of all, Kelly, thanks thanks for having us on. Uh, one of the major differences of this ETF is, first of all, that uh, it's active, whereas many other sustainability um, ETFs aren't, uh, and it's focused in being active, so only 30 to 60 holdings. Uh, second, it's uh, very diversified in how it's attacking this issue of sustainability. So it's not just about, for example, clean energy. We're also in, in investing in sectors like sustainable consumer, um, water, et cetera. Uh, the third would be that it's all cap in nature. So we have about 20% of this ETF investing in companies in less than $10 billion of market cap. So we're really excited about bringing this to the market, active ETF, investing in the solutions providers to the climate transition, which as you noted in your opening comments is something that we think is a, a great wealth creation opportunity over the next 10 years. Gives clients the opportunity to invest in companies that are going to create the planet that we all want our children to inherit while also creating a wealth creation opportunity. Granted, a lot of people see, um, you know, the kinds of companies typically in ESG uh, funds and say they're not that different from the traditional S&P 500. In many cases, they're thought of as kind of dirty companies that buy, you know, clean power credits to offset whatever they're doing. Um, that sort of issue to the side, I, I'm also curious about the fee structure because both ESG and active management typically come with higher fees than people in the ETF world, you know, who are used to the passive index options might be used to. What's the fee structure here? Uh, this is 75 basis point fee structure, and it is wrapped, as you mentioned, ETF. So you're getting the transparency, uh, the tax efficiency, and the ease of trading of an ETF. And the 75 basis points is really in the range of where a lot of these active ETFs are, are being priced because we're offering, obviously, something very differentiated from market cap weighted indexation. Just taking a step back, because we talked a lot about market cap weighted providers at the outset of this, we're really big believers that the world is changing rapidly over the next 10 years, and clients that 
have a lot of that market cap weighted passive indexation are missing out on a lot of the trends that are going to drive the world and equity markets in our view over the next 10 years. So this is one ETF that we've brought to the market today, but we're bringing more. We've managed thematic equity at Goldman Sachs Asset Management for over six years. We managed $20 billion, but this is actually the first time we're bringing it to the U.S. market. We think U.S. clients need more options for future-proofing their portfolio, and this is one of them. And we think the fee really is quite um, uh, well-priced for the type of innovation and exposure that this product is going to provide. Sure. And um, I, Kelly, if I- yeah, I was just going to say, I actually want your kind of general take on, on the market right now. But just one more question, which goes back to the ESG issue and kind of who qualifies is, you know, just thinking through these companies themselves and the exposure or the holding period, um, what would you say to people who wonder about the selection process and say, OK, well, what happens if a company is high environmental but does poorly on governance, for instance, or vice versa? Which of the which of the inputs dominate or how are they weighted? So just in the future Planet Equity ETF, just to be clear, we're going to invest exclusively in companies that are the solutions providers to this incredible transition to to a more sustainable planet. And those companies will also be very strong across all characteristics, environmental and and governance. But just to to add one thing, uh, just to give you an example of a type of company, because this is, again, not just clean energy and not just good ESG characteristics. What are the companies that are going to help us in this transition that we need to make? Uh, An example would be sustainable consumption. So this is something that might not be on people's radar. um, But the fashion industry, of course, is a a very large polluter. Mm -hmm. Um, They are 8 to 10% of all carbon emissions, second biggest user of water. We're invested in a company called Renew Cell, which will be available in this ETF that actually does clothing recycling using a very similar process for recycling paper. So here's an innovative company making uh, sustainable consumption, um, you know, to scale it and to contribute to this idea of a more uh, a more sustainable planet. No, I, it's funny you say that because I just learned about this local company that does um, sort of rental children's clothing with an eye towards... Uh, why pile it up? <laughs> but by the way, the old school version of that was called hand-me-downs. But anyway, Katie, before you go, just a thought on the market landscape in general. We've had the Fed chair weighing in uh, the past couple of days, kind of suggesting there are areas that he thinks are frothy. Valuation. So we have this kind of interesting thing happening in markets where bonds are obviously touching, uh, pushing the lower bounds and equities at the upper bounds. And if you look at long term valuations, we are above where we've been on the 10 year by 33 percent. So that could make people slightly worried. What we really need to focus on and we're at the very beginning earnings season is where their earnings are going to come through. We only have 10% yet of the S&P 500 that's reported. Early signs are very, very strong coming out of these companies, 90% of them surprising on the upside. And what we have to see to, to justify these high valuations is earnings being delivered this quarter and for the rest of the year. We're really focused on in this earnings season, watching those inflation data points. It is real. It is coming through for some of these companies. And, and I would say a year ago, all we cared about was do these companies have the balance sheet to get to the other side of this crisis? Now, in this earnings season, we really need to switch our focus to do these companies have the pricing power to continue to perform um, as the economy recovers? And if you can identify those companies, many of which we own in this ETF, actually, I think you're, you're set up, have a really good setup for the long term. That's a great point. Katie, a pleasure having you. Thanks so much. Katie Koch with Goldman Sachs. Coming up, did you get the notice? Millions of families are seeing deposits in their bank accounts today as part of one of the largest anti-poverty measures since LBJ. We'll dig into the numbers, the implications, and whether this is the start of universal basic income next. And shares of Biogen are sliding after two major health systems said they won't administer the company's controversial Alzheimer's drug. We have those details ahead with Biogen now down 6% on the session. We're back in a moment. 
This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. More than 35 million American families are receiving the first of six advanced child tax credit payments today. Now the White House is pushing to extend the benefit through 2025. Elon Moy is in Washington with the very latest. Elon? Well, Kelly, the White House is calling these payments the largest middle-class tax cut in generations. Parents will get up to $3,600 for each child under the age of six, and they can get half that money in monthly installments from now through the end of the year. That's 300 bucks a month. The rest will be available once they file their taxes. For older kids up to age 17, it's $3,000 total or 250 bucks a month. All told, $15 billion is going out the door today, covering nearly 60 million children. And Democrats want to extend the credit for years to come and maybe even permanently. The people who say we can't afford to give the middle class a break, I say we can afford it by making people at the top and the big corporations, over 50 of which paid no taxes last year at all, to finally just, just start paying their fair share. Republicans, though, are criticizing the proposal as anti-work. Senator Marco Rubio warned that the flood of cash could exacerbate the existing labor shortage. But Democrats point to the potential for these payments to alleviate childhood poverty. The White House compared this benefit to Social Security and said that bills are due every month. Kelly, the help should come monthly as well. Back to you. All right, Elon, thank you very much. So as you just heard, a major experiment is kicking off in the U.S. today. And that got me thinking. This isn't so much about COVID per se. Quite simply, it's an anti-poverty effort on a grand scale and one that's never been tried before. This is cash for kids. And the administration thinks it could cut child poverty in half. You get up to $300 a month for each little kid, $250 a month for each older one. It phases out at $150,000 of joint income, like Elon just said, and ends at $170,000 worth. That will reportedly cover 90% of America's children. Some are calling this a major experiment in universal basic income, but UBI schemes typically replace existing entitlements with cash. This doesn't replace anything. It's just a monthly stimulus, a prepayment, sort of, and analysts think it will be extended into at least 2025. So is this a precursor to a broader UBI? My next guest says, not so fast. Let's bring in Melissa Carney. She's non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor at the University of Maryland. Melissa, it's great to have you. And tell us what you think the child tax credit really is all about. So what I think makes this policy expansion both politically and economically feasible and generally very good policy is the fact that it's targeted on families with children. 
So it's not universal in the sense that every adult, every able-bodied adult gets this payment. We're giving this money to families with children. And frankly, this is one of the best ways the federal government can and should be spending money from the perspective of social returns. We have tons of evidence showing that helping families with kids pay their bills, uh, supplementing their income, this leads to beneficial effects for kids that last into adulthood, improving their education and economic outcomes. So the, the, the fact that this is targeted on families with kids is precisely why I think this is good economic policy. Well, and it doesn't, you know, frankly, compared with the trillions of dollars in stimulus programs we've been used to over the past year and a half, it's not that expensive. We're talking about $150 billion over a 12-month period of time. I guess my question, though, is what kind of confusion it could engender. So on the lower income side of things, a lot of families who don't even pay any tax, they get it. No strings attached. You know, that, that's why we call it refundable. But once you start moving into the middle income areas... It, it offsets sort of the tax refund, doesn't it? I mean, you have uh, people who advise, you know, tax advisors saying they think parents should opt out because it could mess with the re- refunds they might get next spring. So in other words, in those cases, it, apparently a million families have already opted out out of 35 million or so. Why do you think that is? Yeah, so this is a really good point. So if we want to help families with children, doing it through the tax code is a really complicated cumbersome way to do it. Our tax code is extremely complicated. And the lowest income families, the families who most need income assistance, generally don't file taxes. So I think this expansion that happened quickly in the COVID COVID pandemic, um, you know, policy era, this sets up a child allowance idea. But ideally, going forward, we would pull this out of the tax code and just have a child allowance, a child benefit program, It could be run through the Social Security Agency, which is already in the business of sending out checks every month to retirees. We could have a streamlined spending program that we could commit to in the federal budget. And then families wouldn't have to do this really complicated dance of figuring out how this affects their overall tax credit, wondering whether they're going to get this check just to have to pay it back. And just th- as you said, I mean, you know, again, I think it's going to be a long, long time before we see the results of it. We know about the efficacy. It can change how to better target it or, or, or what have you. But is this all meant to be sort of an entry point into a universal basic income for all Americans? And, and we should add that, as I was kind of discussing before, I think the idea of UBI started out as something that would replace existing entitlements. I think we all know that would never be the case today. Social Security is not going anywhere. Medicare is not going anywhere. This would just be additional stimulus payments to the population that doesn't yet qualify for those entitlements, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. An actual universal basic income that paid anything like, let's say, $10,000, right, or even $8,000 to every adult a year, that would swamp the federal budget. So you couldn't do that and maintain Social Security, Medicare, disability insurance, housing assistance, the earned income tax credit. Now, something like this... uh, universal child allowance. And in this sense, maybe we would call it universal because it's going to essentially 90% of families. So this could be reasonably considered a precursor to a child allowance, which we could afford without cutting all of our other spending entitlement social insurance programs. It's, you know, $100 billion a year, $120 billion a year. That is you know, comparable to other spending programs. And frankly, it's something that if we committed to this type of a child allowance, Mm -hmm. 
we could have tax, you know, we could raise taxes in ways that could cover that without upending all of our existing social insurance programs, which essentially would be required for an actual universal basic income not targeted on children. It's fascinating. Universal child income uh, is your term, the way that you're uh, describing it. Melissa, thanks so much. Again, a pretty historic day here uh, in the U.S. for these payments to begin going out. Coming up, Netflix is moving beyond TV shows and movies as it fights to keep the crown as the king of content. Its shares are flat on the year, lagging its so-called fang peers. We're going to look at how this new effort could play out. Plus, America's labor shortage is taking a toll on businesses of every size and every industry. We'll speak with one entrepreneur who's had to close stores due to the labor shortage. We're back in a moment. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get you a check on the markets, which are well off session highs, but also off session lows. We're about in the middle right now. The Dow's down 21. 170 uh, points lower was the low point of the session so far. Still, though, the Dow is the outperformer. It's barely lower. The S&P is half a percent lower, and the Nasdaq is one percent lower. This is the one to watch here as we continue through to check on the sectors. Utilities and financials are among the leaders today, while consumer discretionary and tech are the laggards. And in terms of the movers this hour, ARK Invest, ARK Innovation ETF, the ARK-K ETF, one of the most popular, most followed out there. It's now on pace for its 10th day of declines in the past 11 sessions. It's down 7% this week alone, tracking for its worst week since May as its difficult year continues. It's down 6% since January. What makes the latest slide interesting is it's come amid a period of declining interest rates, not rising ones. Let's also get a check on two companies making their public debut today. Fitness chain F45, backed by the Wahlbergs, sort of, I guess, is making a bet on people returning to gyms post-pandemic. Uh, shares right now are are fractionally higher, about $16.06 for FXLV. Meanwhile, the company that owns Soho House, members-only clubs also going public, uh, members collective group moving lower after pricing at $14. It's currently trading at $13.10. Over to Rahel Solomon now for our news update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Residents of a Belgian village are climbing on top of rooftops to try to escape the raging floodwaters taking over their streets. The unprecedented flooding has killed at least 33 people across Germany and Belgium. The unrest in Durban, South Africa, continues this after the country's former leader, Jacob Zuma, turned himself in last week to serve a 15-month sentence for contempt of court. Overnight, protesters raided and burned several warehouses. At least 72 people have been killed as a result of the week-long violence there. A group of black church officials and activists gathered outside the Texas state capitol to show support for Democratic officials who left the state in an effort to block new voter restrictions. And for more on the fight for voter rights happening around the country, tune into the news with Shepard Smith tonight. And the nation's top doctor is warning Americans about a growing COVID-related threat, misinformation. He's calling on tech platforms to do more to stop the problem, saying that false COVID information puts American lives at risk. 
You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you very much. In just about half an hour time, the National Urban League is hosting a virtual forum on the state of black America, looking at the racial inequities exacerbated during the pandemic and what the path forward for black Americans looks like as the nation recovers. Joining me now is Mark Morial. He's president and CEO of the National Urban League. He's also, of course, the former mayor of New Orleans. It's great to have you back. And what's your focus going to be? Thanks, Kelly. I'm sorry. What's your focus of the event largely going to so, be here? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So we have to look at 2021 in the context of what 2020 taught us. 2020 taught us that racial disparities in health, in economics, and in law enforcement and the justice system were pervasive, uh, systemic, and deep. So in 2021, we issue a call to action. And that call to action is to create a new normal, more diverse, more equitable, more just. It's a call to action about the kind of nation uh, we need to create. So we look at uh, health, we look at economics, we look at uh, police issues and criminal justice issues and sort of outline not only an analysis, but both micro and macro steps uh, we should take as a nation uh, to create this new more diverse and equitable normal. And that's our focus. And that's what the discussion in the virtual event today is going to be about. Sure. So for, you know, for those of us kind of curious what we should be watching on the political front here coming out of this, what would you say is kind of the one or two major efforts you're throwing your weight behind? I think right now uh, I saw your a previous segment on the child tax credit, which I think is an example of the kind of policy that can create a new normal. Uh, underlying that child tax credit uh, idea is the long-standing increase in the gap between rich and poor Americans when it comes to income. Many Americans, not just poor Americans, but working and middle-class Americans have fallen behind. And this child tax credit uh, is one way uh, to, if you will, try to close that gap and create some relief uh, for Americans, an increase in the minimum wage would be a further step. A comprehensive approach uh, to making housing more affordable would be a third way. There are a number of things in the economic arena. Mm. What I would say to many of CNBC's listeners who are investors, why does this matter uh, to me? And it matters because uh, black and brown Americans are growing part of the consumer marketplace in, in the United States. Combined black, brown, and Asian Americans spend some almost $5 trillion a year. Uh, and as such, and as such, what they spend and what they spend on and how much they spend and what they invest in is going to be crucial uh, to the success of the overall American economy. So when we think of black America, it's important for people not to decouple it from a commentary on the overall state of the economy or an overall state of the nation. So closing these inequalities, uh, focusing on equity, we think helps us as a nation writ large. All right. Mayor Morial, thank you. We appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Kelly. Best, I would say best of luck with the event. I don't think you need it, but I appreciate you joining us to describe your Appreciate efforts. you. <laughs> Mark Morial with the National Urban League. Netflix's new feature, GM's Bolt Warning, and the original Doge Father is giving up on crypto. That's all coming up in rapid fire in just a moment. First, though, here's a look at the 10-year Treasury yield, which just dipped below 1.3%. You can see it's been sliding for the past couple of hours straight. Again, 1.301. We'll keep an eye on it for you. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. It's time for Rapid Fire. And here to break down the headlines, today we welcome Michael Santoli, Christina Partsinevelis, and Todd Gordon, who is Managing Director at TradingAnalysis.com and a CNBC contributor. Great to have you guys all here. All right, let's start with Netflix. Some big news where they're getting into gaming. They hired a former Facebook and EA executive as the new vice president of game development. According to reports, they're planning to offer games right on the interface within the next year at no additional cost to subscribers. Shares were initially higher on the news. They're down 1.5% now. It's the worst performing FANG stock this year, still seemingly searching for that next catalyst. Christina, uh, not finding it today, but what do you make of these efforts? Well, I think it's uh, it's something they need to do, given the market is incredibly saturated here in the United States. Uh, and it could give them an opportunity to increase their price point, because right now it's about 14 bucks. You look at uh, Disney Plus, that's coming in just around 7, Hulu 12, Peacock 10, uh, HBO about 15. So this is an opportunity for them to increase the price. And they, I even saw on their website, they're looking for a, a director of product in, innovation. And within that description, they're hiring. It's game-like experiences. So this is it's all going to be about trying to keep your eyeballs glued to Netflix's app. Michael, do they have to do this because video games are just so popular, especially with their core demographic, or are they veering outside of what they do best here? Uh, I think it's the, the former more than anything else. Just the, the amount of screen hours that are now dedicated to uh, to video gaming, it's probably in a young, with a younger demographic the way to kind of you know keep them looking at your own app as opposed to another one uh, also so easy to switch among all these things I mean Microsoft has just a massive gaming portal within it it's not clear to me that investors really think about that first second or third with Microsoft but it's massive Amazon of course that bought twitch uh, everybody's participating but you could see it's pretty core to what Netflix does kind of go out and find individual creators Give them money to create stuff for you. And that's probably, whether it's a movie, a series, sure. or a video game, it's pretty similar. Todd, are you a buyer or seller of Netflix on this decision? I, I own the stock, Kelly. It's been dead money for a year now. And I, I'm actually looking to cut it. I think this is a sort of a fruitless endeavor. If you think about it, um, you know, there's been two major studios. Disney and Google have shut down their video game operations. Apple's in with video game. They're using the hardware with the Apple TV to power and I know my kids. I mean, the, the games that these kids are playing, it, they require a lot of computing power. So what Netflix is doing is relying on your TV's processing power to, to keep kids engaged. I, I just don't see it. Uh, I, think, I, I think it's fruitless. And also, I do like on the other side, though, I like that the former Facebook exec, uh, Mike Verdu, was an Oculus guy. I think that's going to be the future. Hmm. As soon as we can put some form-fitting goggles that are not you know, huge uh, Oculus goggles, something that fits. <laughs> I think that's going to be the future. I think that's going to be very key. But again, for computing power, I just don't see it right now. That's a great point. So maybe the thing to watch for is any developments more along that front, the VRAR front, than just traditional games. All right. Move along. Let's talk about General Motors warning customers not to park some of their Bolt models inside and not to charge the vehicles unattended overnight. This after two of them caught fire after being repaired as part of a recall back in November. And it's another troubling development in the EV space, especially for a company that's pledged to be 100 percent electric by 2035. GM shares are down 2 percent today. They're still up about 36 percent this year. Mike, how serious a recall do you think this is? I don't know long term how serious it is. It's not going to help in terms of any consumer hesitancy about, you know, going all battery electric. Although I guarantee you when gasoline powered cars came out, people said, are you crazy? I'm going to be driving around with a kind of firebomb right next to me. <laughs> um, it was always considered to be risky. The new thing is always considered risky. We hear a lot more about the 
incidents where they seem dangerous than when they, you know, operate as usual. My sense is the industry figures this out, but, uh, you know, maybe that's too hopeful. Christina, just the other day I saw a, an old political cartoon about the danger of electric wires, you know, where people were getting tangled in them and it was all these, you know, dramatizations. And on the one hand, of course, they were wrong because they're everywhere. But on the other hand, they were right because every time a storm comes through, you know, we just had a fire around the corner as a result. So point being, should we just expect these kinds of growing pains with EVs or is it a reminder to consumers we need to be extra, extra careful with some of these new technologies? It's funny because I wish that you guys could see where I'm at right now, and there's tons of wires all by my feet. But uh, this is not something that you want to expect because it could result in death. It could result in injury. It's not just GM, though. You had BMW, Hyundai, uh, as well as Ford. They all just recalled their cars for similar matters, not necessarily fires, but the fact that the lithium-ion batteries had issues. GM, on one hand, though, did say they're going to invest roughly $35 billion just by 2025 to really focus on the electric vehicles. They're going to create something like 5,000 new jobs. So maybe this is something they can, uh, you know, work out, but it's not something that we should get used to. That's for sure. Well, and Todd, I think that's one of the things that I often find frustrating when we just decide, okay, EVs are a goal and we're all just going to throw money at it and everyone should adopt one and you're, you know, blah, blah. And the technology in, in many of these places is new. It needs to be worked out. That often takes time. You don't want to force this stuff down everybody's throat before it's ready. Yeah, yeah. I, Christine and Mike both make good points. Christine, I have, I'm in my, my basement. I've got wires everywhere here. <laughs> and then Mike makes a great point as well. A little bit of uh, a detail that's very unfortunate. I looked at the NFPA, National Fire Protection Association, estimated 200,000 vehicle fires with 560 civilian deaths in 2018. Wow. So two batteries catching fire. As far as I understand, nobody's injured. There's going to be a breaking period of new technology. I think we need to, as a trader and investor, I need to step back, divorce myself from this emotion and say this is probably not uh, a reason to sell the stock. I own the stock. It's only trading eight and a half times forward earnings where Ford is ten and a half. So I think they're expected to make about six and a half dollars next year. You put a 10 multiple on that. Could be back to a $65 stock. I think it broke out about 47 mm-hmm. So anywhere down there. Add to it. I, I still like it. And it's at 56 today. And I think you make a good point, which, you know, Phil Lebeau often reminds us when we cover these Tesla fires as well, that we don't cover every fire that happens with a traditional burning engine uh, with anything near like the, the same concern. Next, a scathing short report is accusing Oatly of misrepresenting its financial data, greenwashing its ESG strategy and overstating revenues to investors. Here's what short seller Ben Axler at Spruce Point Capital had to say on Squawk Box earlier. Let me be crystal clear on this point. I believe that they are misleading the public about their gross margins. Okay, their gross margins are not in conformance with industry practices. You're asking me what I think the stock's worth. It's worth less than less than 10 bucks. And Oatly shares are down about 8% on that today. Uh, they're under $19, and uh, they're down about 5% from their IPO in May. In a statement to CNBC, they also called the report false and misleading, saying, quote, the short seller stands to financially benefit from a decline in Oatly's stock price caused by these false reports. Oatly rejects these claims, all of these false claims by the short seller, and stands behind all activities and financial reporting. Todd, what's your take? You know, look, where, where there's smoke, there's fire. What One part of that Spruce Point uh, report that caught my eye was they went through three auditors. They turned through three auditors in six years. I think, you know, we've broken below the IPO price of about $19.5. There's so many opportunities in the stock market right now. There's so many beautiful investment opportunities. I, I say, why put yourself at risk? They're really riding this plant-based food and this ESG fad. There's, you know, I think 
there, there's debate between uh, whether there was 12 million in revenue reported in, in, in the U.S. or six. I mean, hmm. there's just too much confusion in, in, in here for me. Christina? Yeah, it's actually what in 2018 they they said that they made 12 million, but back uh, in a Swedish magazine they told them they made six million. So there's a lot of discrepancies there, uh, including from some of their employees. But Oatly does have a brand that's well known. It's it seems to be used by a lot of baristas around the country. But the one point that I want to focus on is the greenwashing argument that was made there too, that they exaggerate uh, in terms of you know how much water waste they have, and this is a problem that we are seeing. A across the board that we're not necessarily addressing because there's no standard. We don't know how to determine whether a company is actually going green, if they're reducing emissions, or if they're just buying carbon offsets. So this is, I guess it raises light to a larger issue that we need to pay attention, especially as investors going forward, if you're focusing on these ESG-related funds. It's a great point. And Michael, since we're almost out of time, do you want to talk Oatly or Dogecoin? Because I know both are just your (laughs) burning passions. Yeah, what's what's uh, more likely to uh, to lose value faster? No, I was just going to say with Oatly, one of the reasons this short report, which, by the way, these activist shorts, this mixed record on how they actually pan out. But the reason I think it got traction is nobody thought financially this company was worth $12 billion. It was more about just a, a foothold in the brand and a large expanding uh, end market. It had nothing to do with whether it's a well-run business. All right, we have to go. So, Todd, I'm going to get I'm going to let you be the voice uh, for the Dogecoin discussion today. Basically, and we've covered this well on CNBC, but you know, the, the creator of the Dogecoin is now saying that he's over the crypto space. He thinks it's just, it's not, it's not good for society, basically. Um, what yeah. are your thoughts on this? Yeah, that was, that was, it was very interesting. He said it was, it was, the, the point of cryptocurrency is, is, is to decentralize finance, make it an equal opportunity, uh, you know, store of value. But now the, the very ones they're trying to protect against are, are circling and they're the ones are benefiting. So, uh, we, I personally hold Bitcoin sort of like my Netflix. I wouldn't mind cutting it. Uh, we do offer, we, we cover the crypto space in our area. I know where my analyst is looking for down around 20,000. So we're bearish for now. Uh, and then can I throw one more, I think, sure thing for sure. you, Kelly, if we have time? Saratoga Springs, this is the opening of the racetrack. <laughs> we're, we're done. My buddy Chad Brown, world-famous tra- world trainer. He's got uh, a horse in the 10th. Uh, check him out. Uh, what's it called? His name is uh, Clever Fellow. Okay, I love how you're saying, nah, forget crypto, but definitely bet on this horse that my friend has. No insider <laughs> trading and horse racing either, Kelly. Yeah, exactly. Thank you all today. Really appreciate it for this edition of Rapid Fire. Todd Gordon, Christina Partsenevelis, and Mike Santoli. Coming up, another headwind for Biogen's controversial Alzheimer's drug. Two major American hospital systems are refusing to administer it to patients. We have the details and what it means for the stock down 6% today. We're back in a moment. Shares of Biogen are dropping dramatically today after both the Cleveland Clinic and Mount Sinai say they won't administer its controversial Alzheimer's drug. Biogen shares are now down more than 7%. They've been sliding throughout the session. Let's get out to Meg Terrell, who has the latest for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly, both Mount Sinai and the Cleveland Clinic confirming this reporting from the New York Times that they are not going to administer the drug right now, both seeming to look for potentially more information, more data, uh, and more clarity on paying for the drug as well. Mount Sinai telling us in a statement, quote, the FDA's approval of Aduhelm has raised serious concerns and questions by clinicians, patients, and caregivers, and a cautious approach is required. Mount Sinai Health System will not administer Aduhelm until the outcome of the FDA Inspector General's investigation of Biogen 
is complete. Now, some history here is in order. We have to go all the way back to March of 2019, which is when Biogen stopped the trials of this Alzheimer's drug because it looked like they weren't going to work. Then in October of that year, Biogen said, actually, we see some positive data here. We're going to take this forward and file for FDA approval. In November of 2020, FDA's panel of outside advisors voted almost unanimously against approving the drug. But then in June, of course, we know this drug was approved by the FDA. We then saw the fallout start to happen. Three of those outside advisors stepped down from that advisory panel. Congress started to look into the issue. Then the FDA said itself, we're going to ask the Office of the Inspector General of HHS to look into the process by which we approved this drug. And so now you're starting to see uh, the providers of the drug try to figure out whether they should make this available. And some of the major ones saying they're not going to. Now, Biogen giving us a statement this afternoon, too, saying, quote, medical decisions should be made uh, based on science and data. So it's disappointing that patients living with Alzheimer's disease may reportedly not be able to access Aduhelm at some facilities. Now, they also uh, suggest that if any patients are denied access to care, they should contact the company for help. Kelly? You know, Meg, when we've talked to Michael Yee on this, who's been very bullish on the treatment, he's emphasized that it's supposed to be for people with earlier on Alzheimer's. Um, I'm just surprised that these two marquee, I mean, it's almost like we watch CalPERS in the investment world, whatever they do, everybody else does. It's kind of like the same thing with Cleveland Clinic, that they are standard setters. To say that they won't even administer it, doesn't that feel extreme to you? Well, this is a unique situation with this drug where the controversy over it is almost greater than anything we've seen before. People disagree about whether the drug has been proven to work. Hmm. And then comes the price tag and uncertainties about reimbursement for the drug. And so administrators of the drug are in a very difficult decision about whether to say, yes, we're going to provide it here when there is such controversy around it. And now highlighting, I think, Mount Sinai saying they're going to wait for the outcome of this Office of Inspector General investigation. You know, that really shows they're a little bit nervous about Hmm. what happened with the process of approving this drug. Um, And analysts, I think, covering Biogen, hope that that will be resolved quickly. Absolutely. And And the company. Right. But like you said, they are in a difficult position with uncertainty about how they'll be reimbursed if then they administer. It's it's very complex. Meg, thank you. I'm Meg Trell. And again, Biogen shares are down more than 7% today on all of this. Up next, running out of workers. I'll speak to the owner of Race Faster, an independent athletic retailer, about how he's coping with the ongoing labor shortage and what it means for the future of his expansion plans. And you can catch The Exchange anytime, anywhere. Listen to and follow us on The Exchange podcast today. Welcome back. Companies continue to get creative with hiring as the labor crunch continues. Target, Shopify, and Chipotle are all using TikTok now as a means to attract workers. McDonald's is offering tuition payments and childcare as incentives. How are small businesses supposed to compete with that and adapt to the labor landscape? Joining me now is Aiden Walsh. He's the founder and CEO of New Jersey-based footwear and apparel brand Race Faster. Aiden, it's good to have you. So the labor shortage has been so difficult for you. You guys have had to close stores, right? Yeah, it's 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 really been a challenge. Um, we unfortunately were forced to close uh, our Connecticut location. Um, you know, we we set up interviews and uh, schedule people to come in, but when infor- people are just not showing up to the interviews, um, and it's not just us. We see it and hear it from other retailers, even even mall management up in Connecticut told us the same story. They had scheduled 47 interviews and one person showed up. So it's, it seems to be 
an ongoing thing. I think one of the challenges that you mentioned is that you're scheduling interviews. It seems like people are that people say they're going to show up, but then they're not. So in other words, you, you almost don't know week to week whether you're actually able to recruit workers or not. And I, I, what other options do you have? I mean, is is raising pay sort of the only recourse? And if so, by how much? Yeah, you see, I, I really you're 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 in a catch twenty two. If you raise pay, how much can you afford? Look at us as a small retailer. You know, if if somebody is getting a, a a premium of, of $300 a week over what you were paying them for a small retailer to make up that, let's say 20, 30, 40% raise in what you were paying. It's not sustainable. Um, and even if in the short term you can do it, what's going to happen, you're either going to be forced to raise your prices and that gets back into the whole inflation issue, or you're going to have to, after a time, bring the, bring the, the rate of your pay down, which you know, isn't going to work either. Sure. And you mentioned inflation. I am curious what you guys are experiencing on that front in terms of price hikes and just shortages of, of things in general, because it's kind of a two-pronged challenge where, you know, staffing the stores is one issue. And then because you manufacture your own product, you're on the front lines of that as well. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been, been kind of ringing this bell for months now. You know, we manufacture overseas, we import and we retail. So, so we're, we're vertically integrated. And right as we were coming out of the pandemic, we were hearing from our uh, distribution channel, hey, prices are going up on shipping, prices are going up on raw materials, prices are going up across the board. So we saw this inflation issue coming down the pipeline. Now, it's one thing when you're saying, okay, inflation is commodity driven and that'll go back down. But when the inflation is now being driven by the price of your staff, it's very difficult for that to come back down. You know, it's very difficult to tell somebody, hey, I know I was paying you X, Y, and Z, but that's got to come back to reality. They're not going to want to hear it. Sure. Now, what's interesting to me is we were speaking about the child tax credit earlier on, and it's something that analysts on Wall Street think could be a big beneficiary for things like Foot Locker, Walmart, Target, a lot of the mall-based retailers that you've already been describing. So I guess my question is, you have all these input costs going up. You potentially have people with more money in their wallets, though, because of these payments or maybe just the stimulus in general. So are you able to pass on prices? Are you seeing still decent demand? Do you have any concerns, you know, with having to close one of your locations that you're now not going to be able to kind of make those financial targets you might have previously had? So I think I think across the board, prices are going to go up. And it's, it's, it's a catch-22. It's like, where, where does it end? Okay, prices go up, people have more money, but the, price, the, the cost of them having more money is significant inflation. And so where does it end? Um, for us, yes, of course, you have to, in order to be a viable business, and even in order to compete with your peers, the prices are going to go up. Your expenses have gone up. So that's, there's no way around that. With regard to the child tax credit, I would say that that's going to benefit more the lower income customer who doesn't have disposable income. So there's a certain segment of the market who, let's call it, are living week to week. They're getting these financial incentives and right. it's great and it gives them the ability to do a little more. Um, for us, our customer is more the mid to high end. Yeah. I don't see moving the needle for us. I, I really don't. I think our customer... That money goes into their bank. It goes into, you know, they have the disposable income, and yeah. I don't think for us it moves the needle. Yeah, no, it, you're you're right in the pinch as you describe it, and uh, it must be such a tough spot. Aiden, thanks for joining us to talk about it.
Of course. Thank you, Kelly. We really appreciate it. Aiden Walsh of Race Faster. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.